What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. Today is Friday, March 18th, 2022. I am your host, Matt Norton, here with our now 27-year-old producer and co-host extraordinaire, Nick Janusa. Nick, happy birthday, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Maddie. I had a great week off. Uh, it's birthday week now, <laughs> and wow, we're recording before the sun is down. What a treat. Yeah, man. I went out on Monday after work, and I just went for a walk around my neighborhood, and it was still light out when I got home at like 6.30. Oh my yeah. God, what a treat. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's it's crazy. Like We literally forget what it feels like to have the sun outside for more than like 10 hours a day. Yeah, it's. I feel spoiled, but I'm, just, I'm loving it right now. <laughs> Great week. And today is also the 50th episode of TPT. So thanks to everyone for joining us through the first 50, and this one feels like a big milestone. That's incredible. Thank you, everyone, so much. 50 episodes of TPT. Cheers to 100. Yeah, 50 more to go. <laughs> let's do it. All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. This shows your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you here. Yes, and please go rate the show on Spotify and give us that good old rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, thank you to everyone who's already done that. And if you haven't, maybe give it a shot. <laughs> if you give us a good review, we'll read it on the show too as a, as a quick thank you from us to you. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Nice. All right, <laughs> let's get into our quick hits for the week. So the first one is from World Animal News where Lauren Lewis writes, 34 coyotes killed for cash and prizes during annual killing contests in Pennsylvania. Sign Lady Freethinker's petition to end appalling event. Yeah, so this is some news and a call to action to kick off the show today. For the last 19 years, Sullivan County, Pennsylvania has held a three-day hunting contest with cash prizes and gun giveaways for whoever can kill the most coyotes. This year, hunters killed 34 by using high-tech call devices, dogs, and firearms. The cash prizes totaled at least $6,000, including $1,025 for the heaviest female each day, $200 for the smallest coyote, and a grand prize of $2,000 for the heaviest coyote, male or female. The animals had no history of harming anyone in the county, so this was just a mass killing party, essentially. Yeah, and this is especially troubling to me because of that smallest coyote incentive they have, because, look, I mean, if you're not well-versed in what you're hunting there, instead of going for a small adult coyote, you're pretty likely going to be killing coyote pups. And I also have an issue with the fact that these aren't problem coyotes. Like They're not causing issues for the people or for the ecosystem nearby. So yeah, like you said, this is just kind of a mass killing party. Yeah. 
And Nina Jackal is the founder of Lady Freethinker, and she says that killing animals should never be a competition, especially when the animals involved pose no threat to the community. With coyote hunting contests like this one happening all over the country, we knew that Lady Freethinker had to bring light to this incredibly inhumane practice. So they created a petition. You can click the link in your show notes for this article, and at the bottom is a link to the petition. And basically what they're calling for is rule change that would prohibit people or an agency from offering cash, prizes, or any other incentives to kill innocent wildlife. To our listeners out there in Pennsylvania, you can also reach out to the Pennsylvania Game Commission requesting that wildlife killing contests are banned in the state by emailing pgccomments at pa.gov. Nick, what are your thoughts on this one? Oh, this is just completely senseless to me. I mean, like, I don't even know how you could put yourself up to doing this like killing small coyote like smallest coyote that was the worst one to me like yeah how can you ever aim your gun at at a small like animal that is not even fully grown yet i don't know it's i can't even wrap my head around it to be honest it's it's frustrating and, and embarrassing for the people that that are involved with it yeah, it's a weird one for me because, you know, we've spoken about this before, but just to kind of reiterate or for new listeners who haven't heard us talk about this, we're not anti-hunting per se. Like I'm not a hunter, Nick's not a hunter, but, you know, I don't have an issue with deer hunting, for example, if it's to maintain that population and don't let the deer population get so big that it throws off the equilibrium of the ecosystem. Right. This isn't one of those cases. And, you know, they're also not problem coyotes like if they're going after people's pets or people in their yards like okay then maybe we have this conversation but I I just I don't understand the logic behind this and to you know basically just give out prizes congrats like it's I don't know this one doesn't make a lot of sense to me so go sign that petition if you're interested yeah barbaric is the word I was looking for all right let's move on to the next one And it is from Inside Climate News, and it's titled, A Florida chemical plant has fallen behind in its pledge to cut emissions of a potent greenhouse gas by Phil McKenna. So this one's actually from a month ago, but I just stumbled across it this week. So Ascend Performance Materials is the largest emitter of nitrous oxide in the U.S., and it's located near Pensacola, Florida. The plant produces adipic acid, which is used in manufacturing nylon 6.6 and polyurethane, which are components of carpets, car parts, running shoes, and more. The nitrous oxide produced by this process is considered a climate super pollutant. And if you don't know what polyurethane is, just watch like 15 seconds of how it's made on the Science Channel. You'll figure it out really (laughs) quick. It's in a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's in like almost everything. Um, And Ascend emitted 27,528 tons of nitrous oxide into the atmosphere in 2020, as reported by the plant to the EPA. That's the same amount of greenhouse gas that 1.6 million cars produce every year and is more than five times nitrous oxide than what's produced by any other U.S. plant. So nitrous oxide isn't harmful to humans in small doses, and it's actually used by many dentists as an anesthetic. And... It's not regulated by the Clean Air Act. So this is kind of an interesting case here. Yeah, and the issue with nitrous oxide is that it's the most significant ozone-depleting gas and is 300 times more damaging than carbon dioxide. Exactly. 
And that's one of the factors why a Sens Pensacola plant has become one of the top 25 greenhouse gas emitters in the nation, along with mostly coal-fired power plants and oil refineries. The difference is that nitrous oxide is relatively easy to burn or chemically decompose. So other adipic acid plants in North America, Europe, and Asia have been destroying or abating at least 95% of their nitrous oxide emissions since the 1990s. Wow. Ascend only destroyed about 70% of its nitrous oxide in 2020. And since it's the largest adipic acid facility in the world, their emissions have outpaced the emissions they've avoided. Officials from Ascend told Inside Climate News in early 2020 that they would reduce the remaining nitrous oxide emissions by 50% by mid-2020, according to this article. This would mean that they would have an emissions reduction of more than 95% by 2022. But instead their emissions increased by 50% in 2020. Yeah, and Chris Johnson, the company's director of sustainability, said they have completed the first phase of their reductions and are currently working on phase two, which would create reductions of more than 90% by the end of 2022. But the next question is, how's that going for them? Not well. (laughs) They've been working on their own recycling technology since 2015, and in that time, The amount of nitrous oxide they've abated has decreased from 91% in 2015 to 70% in 2020. Most of their emissions reductions have come through carbon trading, where they've basically paid a fine instead of lowering their own emissions. And if they continue to sell carbon offsets at the same rate they did in 2020, it would only equal a 35% emissions reduction, which is not 50% like they had hoped for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And just for reference, the only other adipic acid plant in the U.S. is located in Victoria, Texas, and that plant abates roughly 97% of its emissions. That plant is owned by a company called Invista. It's kind of wild to me that, you know, they're they're trying to reinvent the wheel here and it's just not going well. Yeah. Like we have the technology and other plants in, you know, Victoria, Texas, like you just mentioned, or in Europe or Asia, wherever other adipic acid plants are, they're doing it well. And they're just, I don't know. I I don't, I don't understand the logic behind, yeah, we're going to try something different, even though this method really works. (laughs) Yeah. Like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's the simplest way I can put it here. Like why, if no one else is having an issue with it, why are you trying to like go out of your way to do something that's like revolutionary? It's just unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with them trying to improve existing techniques because look, everything can be improved upon. I mean, all of our processes are, are good until the next big thing comes along. So it's not like I'm saying, you know, just take it easy and do what works. If you want to improve that process, great, but trying to do something entirely new and it's clearly not working. Yeah. Little, little different there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like everyone else is destroying 95% of their emissions. That's pretty damn good. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we can do much better than that, to be honest. Yeah. So in closing, a campaign strategist for Climate Strategies Lab named Jesse Waxman says, moving away from suppliers that have outsized greenhouse gas footprints in comparison to peers is a really easy move. They really need to step up their game on sustainability. And the easiest way that they can do this right now and have a big impact on slashing their emissions is using that nitrous oxide abatement technology. So Jesse Waxman said it best. Like the tech is out there. Just use it. Do it. it. Just do it. Yeah. Don't be a knucklehead. 
All right, Matt, what do you say? You want to take a break right here? I would love to. After the break, two more quick hits for you. Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, how air pollution across America reflects racist policy from the 1930s by Raymond Zong and Nadia Popovich of the New York Times. So we've spoken about how air pollution impacts marginalized communities at a higher rate before, but this article did a really, really good job of breaking that down with some graphics. So if you aren't following us already on Twitter, TikTok, or Instagram, go do that at Planet Today Pod, because we're going to be posting the graphics there within a few days. I'll make some clips up. Um, So urban neighborhoods that were redlined in the 1930s are still exposed to more air pollution today. So this article discusses how racism in the past has contributed to ongoing inequality today. Redlining was a practice, if you're not familiar with it, where red outlines were drawn on maps to denote, quote, risky areas for real estate investment which meant that more black and immigrant families lived there at the time. So still today, neighborhoods that were redlined before the practice was outlawed in 1968 have higher populations of black, Latino, and Asian residents. And one of the areas the authors look at is between Berkeley and Oakland, California, and they show how neighborhoods with higher neighborhood grades in the 1930s now have lower levels of nitrogen dioxide pollution and a lower percentage of people of color living there. In West Oakland specifically, more children there deal with asthma because of traffic and industrial pollution than in nearby communities with higher neighborhood grades from 90 years ago. So it's really important to take a step back and realize that this practice was really popular in the 1930s, and it was outlawed 50 years ago. But there's ongoing effects from this that are still lasting today, and... You know, it's not something that you can overlook and just say, yeah, well, that was outlawed in 1968. We're done with it. We're over it. Who cares? We need to care because the effects of it and the impacts of it are still ongoing all these years later. Yeah. And I think it does probably have to do with like, if you think about it, like you people generally tend to stay where their families live, you know, like they're not Mm going to go too far out of you know, where they're generally speaking, where they fam, where their family is from and where they grew up and all that stuff. It's just kind of like a, a fact. Yeah. And with that being said, it's like, 
you know, the, the ability to social climb and to, you know, basically get out of the, the class that you were born into is still very difficult today. Yeah, it's very tough. And I mean, there's plenty of studies that have shown that you can move up slightly, but it's few and far between for the people who were born in, you know, a less advantageous position to all of a sudden be the wealthiest person in the world. And part of the issue is, you know, in those communities, because of how tax dollars are allocated in, you know, different districts, education becomes a real game breaker where if you're born into a community with really good public schools, you're more likely to be successful. But if you're born into a community where the school district struggles, the students then struggle to, to grow out of that position. And it's, right. you know, it's, it's very similar to what they found here. Yeah. And the study behind this article also found that red line neighborhoods have less green space and more paved surfaces, meaning it will be roughly five degrees hotter in the summer on average in previously redlined areas. Yeah. And less green space, meaning less trees and less vegetation to take in the carbon emissions nearby. And that's also going to mean less clean oxygen produced there. We're also talking about hotter neighborhoods, so either higher energy bills that get tough to pay or people just struggling to fend off the heat. Yeah, and people in red line neighborhoods were also twice as likely to visit an emergency room for asthma in 2019. One of the researchers who worked on the study, Joshua S. Apti, expected differences in neighborhoods to be more common in places like the South. But the patterns of issues today being traced back to redlining is consistent throughout the country. Part of this is that some of the least desirable neighborhoods in the 1930s already had heavy industry and, you know, it's associated smog there. Those neighborhoods are still more exposed to dirty air by living near highways, railroads, or other industrial pollution in some cases. And over time, these neighborhoods have seen less investment than the higher graded neighborhoods. So with less investment and less affluent people pushing back on certain proposals, which really that's a big thing that we can spend an entire episode on. Yeah. <laughs> New projects that needed cheap land usually got located there. And it's why so many highways cut through lower income communities. Yeah. And with that comes more exposure to air pollution. So the authors say one limitation of the study is that it looks at demographic and pollution information only from 2010. When the researchers started their analysis, information from the 2020 census was still being collected, they said. So they reran their analysis using 2015 pollution data and found consistent trends. So unfortunately, since air pollution hangs out in the air so long, even though air pollution has decreased in the last decade, racial and income disparities in exposure to air pollution has persisted because as those greenhouse gases hang out in the atmosphere for, you know, 40 years for methane, 200 years for carbon dioxide, even though the amount of emissions that we're putting up every year, that trend is going down, there's still this historical backlog of emissions and smog that people are going to be breathing in if they live in, you know, a neighborhood that's right down the street from a coal plant. Yeah. We're, we're fighting the damage done over a span of many, many, many years. Like, yeah, this is irreversible damage at, at this point. So the only thing we can do is try and reduce our emissions now and, you know, hopefully keep it like we like we've said many times in the past below that one point five degree, you know, mark. 
Yeah, this was a really interesting article for me, and I, I'm not sure the right word to use here, so bear with me, but I, I really enjoy studying about environmental justice because it's something that I wasn't really exposed to much until I took a class about it in, in grad school. It's a really important topic, and it's one that I think gets overlooked on the surface level of environmentalism, but it's really important that the communities that are facing the most impacts from air pollution, from climate change, that they get the help that they deserve and that they need. So I I thought that this was a really, really well done article and one that I would definitely recommend checking out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's close this off on a happier note. So our last quick hit of the week is by Sarah Gibbons of National Geographic, and she writes, climate resilient coral species offer hope for the world's reefs. A new study found that two of the world's most common species of reef-building corals can cope surprisingly well with climate change as long as warming is kept below 2 degrees Celsius. We've talked about coral bleaching, ocean pollution, marine heat waves, and how corals are highly impacted by climate change. So this was a welcome surprise to read about. Yeah, I remember we did an episode where we were talking about how, I think it was Australia, had their coral reefs like just decimated and, and mm-hmm. we had there was like a picture I remember specifically I don't know if it was Net Geo or not but it was just a decimated gray yeah. reef and it was like wow this is hard to look at I know the exact picture that you're talking about yeah yeah I can't remember what article that's from gloomy. But yeah it was definitely gloomy so far though the world has warmed by 1.1 degrees Celsius which is part of why corals have been dying off at high rates The Great Barrier Reef is currently in crisis, according to a recently published report by the United Nations. The report warned that some coral reef ecosystems could face irreversible damage if warming reaches 1.5 degrees, and that if warming reaches 2 degrees, 99% of all reef-building corals could be lost. If that were to happen, some corals might survive, but coral reefs would not. And that's especially problematic when you consider the number of marine species that call coral reefs home. The researchers for this study found that Hawaiian corals kept in water simulated to be two degrees warmer for two years were surprisingly resilient. And about two thirds of those corals survived in the study. Marine heat waves killed over a third of the corals on Hawaii's coral reefs in 2014 and 2015. So the researchers for this study using a hammer and chisel collected samples of three common coral species, rice coral, finger coral, and lobe coral. The researchers were led by Rowan McLaughlin of Oregon State University, and they placed corals in a 70-liter tank off of Coconut Island so that they would experience the same weather as a reef that was on shore. They simulated the ocean by creating a mini-biome inside the tank and then tested warmer waters, acidified waters, and sometimes both. They also set up a fourth set of tanks as a control to compare to the tanks that Nick just mentioned. And all studies basically found that corals were stressed and reacted accordingly, but eventually they became acclimated to their new environments. Yeah. So in the study, 46% of rice coral, 56% of lobe coral, and 71% of finger coral survived. Many coral populations were even thriving after 22 months. The researchers add that there is a limit, though, and with the world currently on track to warm by 2.7 degrees Celsius, corals will eventually lose this fight, unless we can mitigate climate change and keep the warming below 2 degrees. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's good that these corals are more resilient than I than we thought, I guess. But still, I mean, you know, if we're only keeping half of the the coral in some cases, it's not going to it's not going to be good and we're going to be left with more of those scenes from the article that we were just talking about with the um completely decimated reefs. So, yeah, this isn't by any means like <laughs> the best news of all time. It's more of a silver lining in a tough situation. Yeah. So I guess the way to think of it is, look, the corals won't do well if warming gets above two degrees. They will do better in under two degrees than we thought. They'll do a lot better at 1.5 degrees. So if we're setting our goals, like 1.5 should still be the goal, even if it's unattainable. Like, let's do our best. And if all we can get to is 1.7, I'd rather fail at getting to 1.5 and be close than set a goal of 2.0 and, you know, we get to 1.9 and we're like, all right, hands are clean. We did what we needed to do. Yeah. Like, let's do more than what we need to and do whatever we can because if we're saving more corals, that has a huge impact on all of those other marine animals. Yeah, I agree. And like this just furthers the point that 1.5 is really, really what we need to shoot for. Like it, there, it's not just affecting the oceans. It's not just affecting like, you know, rainforests. There's so many things that it affects. So, you know, that 1.5 goal is it's not just there like, oh, let's just let's just hope and pray 1.5. Yeah. And, and I mean, the good news about this is they essentially found out that some corals can rebound if their populations decrease. And lobe coral is an essential reef builder in the Pacific Ocean. So if that one can survive, there is hope for the animals that rely on corals too. And with active restoration work and measures to limit global warming, one of the species that scientists are most worried about in the near term, which is corals, might be okay. Yeah, let's just hope for the best. I mean, lobe coral, keep us in the fight, man. Do your work, put your nose to the grindstone and get it done. We love Lobe. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> All right, add that to a list of things that uh, I didn't need to say, but we're leaving it in, baby. <laughs> that will do it for today's episode of TPT. I'll be back on Monday for our March interview. Yes, so Matt spoke with Dave Johnson of Stanford Law School and the Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford about his upcoming book, Climate Activism by Design. Hope you all like the interview and check out the book when it comes out too. In the meantime, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a review for the show on Apple. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We're produced every week by Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can people listen to more of your tunes? You can find more of my stuff at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. You can keep up with the entire TPT team on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Planet Today Pod, or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Make sure to follow our socials for an exclusive quick hit every week that we won't be talking about on the podcast. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace!